You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 3800 Marlton Pike, Pensacon, New Jersey. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. You may have heard that over the overnight, uh, there was a shooting in Dayton, Ohio, where nine people were killed. Dayton, Ohio. That was yesterday, but between now and then, yes. And last Sunday, four people were killed at a garlic festival, and I was reading the news about that, and a little kid, six-year-old, got to my heart, and I was so struck. The 250th and 251st mass shooting in 2019 happened within the past 24 hours. And I'm sorry if you're hearing this for the first time from me, because I don't really want to be part of the 24 news hour cycle, 24 hour news cycle, uh, because it's, it's just very tempting to just turn all of that off and, and not to worry about what happens in Ohio or Texas or California. They are worlds away, really. But I, I just drove by Dayton on my trip. It was like, take the, this road to go to Dayton. I was just there and I have friends that live in Dayton and I'm from California. And, and, and there's all kinds of connections and, and all of the, uh, gun laws that are, that govern the country affect every state. To ignore, to ignore it doesn't seem like an option, but to look at it doesn't give many more options. What am I supposed to do? Why wouldn't I close my eyes? And that's the question I want to wrestle with today. What do we do when everything goes wrong? What do we do when we have failed? How do we rebuild? What does it take to, to overcome the momentum of disaster when it just keeps coming and keeps knocking us down like our tower back there? The certainty of loss. Why won't it be exactly the same it was when it was a disaster? How do we not lose heart? So I want to look at a disaster in the Bible to give us a common story to work with. We each have our own individual disaster that may be coming to mind right now. I know of several tragic things that have happened in, in the families in our congregation just this month. The darkness is all around us. But I'm hoping that we can find some light in common encouragement in a story from our ancestors. The story I chose is about Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah 8.9 describes them as Nehemiah the governor and Ezra the priest and scribe. They were responsible for rebuilding the temple and the walls of Jerusalem after the return from exile from the Babylonian captivity. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book in the Hebrew Bible, but they got separated in history. The minor prophets Haggai and Zechariah play a role in this story too. So they're like kind of deep cuts of the Bible. Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah. They're all playing a part in this story. Babylonian captivity, also called the Babylonian exile, was the, the forced detention of Jews in Babylonia following the, the latter's conquest of the kingdom of Judah in 598 and 597. And five, in 587 or 86 um, BC, they uh, destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. The, captivi- ca- the captivity formally ended in 538 
when the Babylonian Empire was conquered by the Persian Empire and Cyrus the Great gave the Jews permission to return to Palestine. Historians agree that several deportations took place, each the results of uprisings in Palestine, and that not all Jews were forced to leave their homeland, and that that returning Jews left Babylon at various times and that some Jews chose to remain in Babylon, thus constituting the first of numerous Jewish communities living permanently in the diaspora. Have you ever heard of the diaspora? That's how Paul, in his letters and the stories about him, he can go and he can find a synagogue in lots of different places because there are Jews living all over the Greek world. And this was the first time that that began to happen. The Persian Empire was eventually conquered by Alexander the Great, and it became the Greek Empire. That might ring a bell more more so from Western civilization class in in college or, or, or high school. Many scholars cite 597... BC as the date of the first deportation for it was in that year that King Jehoiakim was deposed and apparently sent into exile with his family, his court and thousands of workers. Others say the first deportation followed the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian emperor in 586. If so, the Jews were held in Babylonian captivity for 48 years. But there's this tradition that comes out of Jeremiah that says that the the Babylonians had the Jews in exile for 70 years. Uh, That Jeremiah 29.10 says that the exile would last 70 years. So some choose that maybe the, the, the captivity began earlier in 608 and ended in 538 with the decree of, of, of Cyrus. Or others say 586 was the beginning of the uh, of the captivity, but it didn't end until 516 when they completed the temple, which is the story I'm about to tell. So let's look at Ezra 1, 1 through 6. Oh, it's up there. There's Cyrus the Great in one of his depictions. In the first year, th- this is an interesting part of, of the Bible because it starts to be real historical. You know, we have historical context for this. Uh, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah has a bunch of like correspondence in it. Like, this is the letter that they sent to the king, and this is the letter that the king's emissary sent back. Interesting. So, particularly, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that's 538, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved to the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm, and also to put it in writing. So you see how they're telling the story. This is God moving Cyrus's heart. But this was, this was Cyrus's plan for all of the territory that he, that he, uh, ruled. He had a different idea. The Babylonians were brutal. They invented all kinds of terrible things. They carted people off. Uh, but Cyrus wanted to have people in their homeland practicing their culture, but just giving him all the money. So let me take care of you and you just feed my need for, for, uh, riches so I can manage this giant empire. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them and in any locality where survivors may now be living. The people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, those are the southern 
uh, tribes that constituted Judah. And the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. Sounds pretty great. <laughs> Sounds pretty amazing. We get to go back. But there's this double stirring going on in the story that you might have missed there. The heart of Cyrus is stirred to make this declaration that everyone can go back. But then also the hearts of the Judahites and the Benjaminites are stirred to go back because not everyone did go back. The possibility of return and the actual returning was not automatic. I read this and I was amazed at this this radical change in a relatively short period of time. Kind of gives me hope that, you know, things can change. Uh, the king and his court get deported by the brutal Babylonian Empire in 597, and there are multiple revolts, and then Nebuchadnezzar just destroys Jerusalem in 586. And then 60 years later, you get to go back, and we're going to even help you go back, and we're going to give you stuff to rebuild your, your temple to your god. That 60 years, you know, no, that's even less. Um, no. Yeah, 60 years ago. My parents were alive 60 years ago. 1959. You know? Something something amazing happened. The, everything kind of shifted on its head. Everything was lost. We're in captivity. And then now we're coming back. It's kind of like a head trip. And some people aren't ready to do it. Some people have, have made their peace with living in Persia, and they're not coming back. But those that did, uh, they're, the, they're the heroes of this story. There's archaeological evidence for this. Check this out. Uh, David, put that up there. There's This is called the Cyrus Cylinder, and it attests to Cyrus's rule. Uh, the 6th century B.C. Cyrus Cylinder, which many have recognized as the first charter for humans' rights, is a clay record written in Babylonian cuneiform of Cyrus's victory over Babylon. And worthy of note, the cylinder gives permission to worship freely and to rebuild destroyed cities and worship centers, kind of like what we're hearing about in, in Ezra. Though the Jews were not mentioned by name in the cylinder, they were free to return to their homeland that lay in ruins. <clears throat> this syncretistic policy supports the biblical account of Cyrus being moved to let the Jews return home. Can you, you see the little, it's like cuneiform or these little like poke holes that all of that's writing that looks like a corn cob. That's, that, that's all, that's all writing. So a group of Jews return with the intent of rebuilding the temple. And this is a momentous undertaking. So all the people get named. Ezra 2. You can put that up there, David. Ezra 2. This is all of Ezra 2. It's just a list of names. You know, there are lists and there are numbers of people that came with them. And then the paragraphs are just lists of names too. Um, these people are heroic. They went back. They didn't stay. They came, and this was their plan to rebuild the temple. Um, there, there, but there was nothing to return to. That's why most people. That's why most people stayed in Persia. That's why these people are so uh, extraordinary, and they get named in the Bible forever, because there was nothing to return to in Palestine. It makes sense that the returners would be remembered. We need to remember those who are ready to pick up the pieces after disaster people that are ready to do that are are unique not everyone is ready to do that there there are some people that are ready to to rally us 
the person who had hope in the moment of despair, the person who had an idea for how to salvage something from what seemed like nothing, the person who would listen to us in our grief, the person who wasn't overcome when we were overcome, the person who could tell a story about the loved one that we lost, the person that made a container for us when we felt like we might spill all over everything. What did these people do when everything went wrong? They waited until they could, and then they returned to rebuild. It's extraordinary. It's almost as crazy as Cyrus allowing them to return and even helping to fund the rebuilding. So let's pause for a minute and remember the name of someone who was there for you and your disaster. Someone that returned, so to speak. Someone that was with you when something went wrong in your life, when everything maybe went wrong in your life. Who was there? Pause to remember them. Maybe it's someone in this room. Maybe the disaster is now. These people return to an inhospitable place. In their absence, other people have risen to power in the land. Other gods have risen to popularity. The people who live there now are hostile to this project of rebuilding the temple. But the people who return sacrifice to the god of their ancestors. It takes a lot of guts to go back, to carry on, to move forward after a disaster. These are courageous people. Saying a prayer after a disaster can feel like a monumental act, right? When people are dying left and right on the news because someone wanted to go out in, in a sick kind of glory, how do we pray? After everything has gone wrong, is God even listening? Does my prayer matter if it didn't work to keep those people safe? These are age-old questions. In Ezra 3, 10 through 13, Ezra leads the people to pray at the beginning of the work. As they lay the foundations of the temple, there's all kinds of mixed emotions. They all come to the surface. Rebuilding reminds us that what was there is still gone. The fact that something new is needed means that the old is gone. The need for something new means the lack of something old. Let's look at it here with an image of Gustave Doré, who, who illustrated much of the Bible. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord... The priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, took their place to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord. He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid 
while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. Isn't that how it is to rebuild? Joy and weeping all wrapped together in one. Relief that something new is going to happen. Thanksgiving for the provision. But recognition of what was all, of what was, and it's all together at the same time. When we were building and rebuilding the block towers in the back as we worshipped, we were reenacting this process in symbolic form. The old is gone. Can we start again? Can we do it? It doesn't look the same. Is it as good? Can I make any good in a place that is now so bad, so streaked with difficult memories? Yes. Even if the new might soon be gone as well, build it up, knock it down. Build it up, knock it down. It helps me to see this dynamic happening again and again and, and all the way back 2,500 years ago where it's happening with Ezra and the people. The wheel of time keeps rolling on. The powers that be have continued to rearrange themselves. Technology has changed. Rulers have changed. Other empires have risen and fallen. But God's love endures forever. He is good. His love endures forever. I don't know what to do but bring it back to this, and I don't know if it helps you enough, but it's all I have. God's love endures forever. Even when you can't tell the difference between joy and sorrow, when everything good seems like it might soon be gone too, or it reminds you of how fragile your foundations really are, there must be something more. God's love must endure forever. Something more substantial, something solid on which, on which we can rebuild. And nothing is substantial enough, it seems, except for God's love. When everything else is up in the air, God's love is underneath. So it's not surprising that in this period, the idea of a Messiah came to pass. Before this, in Jewish culture, they weren't talking much about the anointed one of Israel that was going to come and make everything right. But they had experienced something so terrible that they they began to, to realize that these promises that the prophets had given them must be coming in some other way. We had looked to so many other rulers, and they are not pulling it off. The people who are living there in, in Israel at this time are not their friends. Things are not going okay. Okay, we laid a foundation for the temple, but it is not okay. This is barely working at all. The people there are against them. Nehemiah has to set guards. He, he has to divide his labor force when they're building the walls. Half of them build the, the walls, and then half of them protect the people who are building the walls because there are assassins that want to get them. Uh, after they, they, they lay this foundation... Supposedly with permission, the, the people that live there write back to the Persian headquarters and say, hey, don't forget, these Jewish people are, are rebels. And if you give them this temple, it'll, it'll cause a revolt. And so the, the politicians in Persia say, hey, that doesn't sound good. And so 
building the temple stops for 12 years until somebody finds the piece of paper that Cyrus had written. Darius, his, his like grandson, finds it and says, oh, I guess I'm on the hook for this. Okay, yeah, go build it. And then they're able to build it. It's terrible. It doesn't work. You know, there's this moment of joy, this moment where something works finally, and we're going to have this, this amazing moment with Ezra. But it's not, it's not going to last that long. It's very fragile. It's very scary. Just like the moment that, that we live in. Do you feel exhausted by it? This constant uh, threat, this things aren't going right. They felt it too. So they, they, they said, oh, there must be a Messiah. There must be someone coming who can make all things right. And we know that 500 years later, Jesus came to fulfill those promises. And that's a long time to hope. And some people were still holding out hope. God bless them. Jesus enters the darkness. He inhabits our mess and dies at the hands of it. He does not solve all the problems the way we think maybe he should. He solves the deeper problem and then leaves us to keep moving through this world in a similar sort of uncertainty as the, as our ancestors were, were moving through with Ezra. I wish it was a bit easier. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6 through 10, you can put that up there, David. It says, let light shine out of darkness. That's what God said. And made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. The Messiah has come and he is with us, but it's not some shiny, too happy ending. We're in dusty clay jars. Paul continues, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Dang it, if that's just the way it is. Death and life together in us. Joy and sorrow, laughing and tears being heard from far away, and we don't know what the difference is. It still seems the same, but Jesus gives us a stronger sense of that hope so that we can endure maybe even more difficult things. So let's keep making sure that there's enough light. That hope stays next to our despair, at least, and and keeps up with it. Our goal, it seems here in 2 Corinthians, is to not be destroyed. To survive. To make it through. And apparently that will be enough. It's, It's dusty. It's cracked. The light's there and we... We see it sometimes, but we need to keep seeing it. We need meetings like this to uh, bring it up. We need a rhythm of life together that, that, that celebrates the light and the hope and that, that, that presence of Jesus among us because it is so easy to lose, so fragile, so easy to, to let the darkness 
shine upon us instead of Jesus. So we need the, the song like we were singing, the darkness is like light to God. How can I be like that? Maybe it's, maybe it's singing that song. That's how. The, how can I be persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed? Feels like I might be being crushed. Yeah. Yeah. We're together in that. And Jesus is shining in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Somehow that's the answer. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.